0: failure is where the real learnings occur. (laughs) When you're successful, there's many factors that go into it, including luck. And it's like, it's hard to learn a whole lot. It strokes your ego. And so, you know, I mentioned that I started my first company at 27. That was at the height of the original internet boom. And my business partner and I raised a bunch of money. We built a 100 person company, had a ton of momentum. And then the the bubble burst, if you remember around the turn of the millennium, the bubble burst, and it was not pretty for a lot of companies, including mine. Ultimately, um, my company went out of business, and we lost millions of dollars in, in investment money, and, and lots of people lost their jobs out of that, and it was very, very difficult.
1: But first, a word from this show sponsor. Have you ever told yourself, "I don't think I can do this?" or they will never go for this, or I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine? if you can remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. Mindset Shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for their teams, for their business, for their culture, and for themselves. We help leaders and organizations unlock their growth. Check out www.mindsetshift.co.uk
2: for more information. Well, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to this week's episode of Everyday Leadership. I have the absolute pleasure of talking to Kevin Dalstrom today. He is the Executive Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Central Pacific Bank. He spent about 25 years in startups and fintechs. And today, we're definitely going to hear a lot about that experience and that wisdom. So I hope you enjoy the chat. And as always, I start the conversation at the beginning, asking him, how did he get into startup and fintech?
0: Yeah, so I mean, just going way back very quickly, I grew up in a small town in Texas, and this is pre-internet. And so my horizons weren't that broad. And so, you know, went to college in Texas and I, I came out. a a great time to graduate from university, which was in the mid-90s when the original internet boom was taking off. So a lot of life is timing, you know, and hopefully making a few smart decisions, getting some lucky breaks. Started my career in with a consulting firm. You know, I got a degree in engineering because I was always into math, but I realized before I graduated that I did not want to be an engineer. I've always been more sort of creatively wired, but it was great education started my career in management consulting, but very quickly got into startups. I actually started my own company at age 27. And now fast forward a bunch of years, you know, 25 years. I've started a bunch of companies, mostly at the intersection of financial services and technology. And I've also worked within some larger public companies. In fact, I'm right now working on spinning out a startup from a public bank that happens to be located in Hawaii. We're we're creating a a new digital bank that's really exciting. And so, you know, it's been a long and winding journey. And I guess to your point, I've done a lot of different things and I guess I I always was different. And it's actually something I struggled with early in my career because I always sort of categorically rejected the idea that, you know, you had to choose between career success and happiness. And I've always been a big believer in what I call being multidimensional, which means, you know, there's multiple... Pursuits that you're you're pursuing that you're you're interested and passionate about, and it's becoming more widely accepted now. But you know, I'll tell you, in the mid late '90s into the 2000s, that was you know something people would laugh at if you said you know if you stated that your goal was to not necessarily just march up the corporate ladder and make more money, but to, to lead a balanced life and to pursue lots of different things. That wasn't something people talked about. And so maybe I was a little bit ahead of my time. And that's kind of the message I like to get out now is I've learned a lot of lessons, mostly the hard way of trying to construct a multidimensional life. You know, there's lots of people I've had good success in business, but there's lots of people who have had more success in their career or have made more money than me. But I think what I've done better than most is, you know, create a kick ass life. So I, I try to share some of, some of the things I've learned along the way.
1: When you're thinking about uh, a kick ass life, what is that? look like for someone like like you. What's that balance like if there is a balance? Yeah.
0: No, I think it is all about balance. And for me, there was a distinct moment. So it's been a learning, a long journey and a learning process. And you know, a few years ago, I was a senior executive in a multi-billion dollar public company. And I remember sitting in a, a boardroom and there was 10 of us in the boardroom. And I just had a moment of clarity where I looked around the table and every single person in the board room was Incredibly successful by society's standards, right? So, big leader, leadership roles have made, you know, obscene amounts of money, but I happen to know that almost none of them were happy. And that there was a moment of clarity for me. And I realized more money wasn't going to make my life better, but having more control of my time and living in a place that inspires me and being able to pursue some of my passions outside of work would make me happier. And so I kind of did a reboot, you know, in my, I'm 50 now. So in my mid forties, I did a reboot, moved my family to Boulder, Colorado, you know, I now split time between Boulder and Hawaii, which is, which is nice. And that was by design. It was a pretty deliberate move, but you know, for, for me, happy, happiness means working on things you're passionate about. You know, I'm a creator at heart, but also having time to pursue all of your passions. I happen to be a pretty committed rock climber. That's why I live in Boulder. And so I make time to pursue that. It does result in in a a great sort of balancing dynamic where when you've got two pursuits, let's just take work and rock climbing that are completely different, right? Completely different people setting, the skills that you develop are completely different. It really it it provides a great balance because if if one of your pursuits is going poorly or you're frustrated or, or if it's going well, there's always the other thing to balance it out. It's, you know, it's about balancing my passion for rock climbing, my passion for doing great work and a few other hobbies, but then also of course, you know, my my family. That's something that most people struggle with. I mean, it's it's, you know, especially for men, you know, society tells us that your success is measured by your accomplishments in your work. And so many men in particular and a lot of successful men, they wake up one day and they realize they've got a one-dimensional life where work is their life and that's not a recipe for happiness.
1: Something that you you said earlier on the run around, you knew the people in that boardroom were not happy. Was that something that they had shared with you? Was that something that you you instinctively knew because you knew who they were and the conversations you were having?
0: Yeah, it's all of the above. I mean, some of them I had had conversations in private where they had said, "Hey, you know, you seem Kevin, you seem to to have be happy and to balance these things. How do you do it? Because I'm, you know, I've got all this money, but I'm miserable. So I, you know, there's several examples of that." But also just, just through observation, you know, you can tell, and this is, again, something that, again, a lot of men in particular fall victim to in corporate America, you become a little bit of a victim of your own success, is that it's a trap in many ways, and that you find incredible success, and that snowballs, and that leads you to pouring even more of yourself into your work. And then again, as I said, you wake up one day, and, and you're, you're one-dimensional, you're not happy. And you know you can see all the things that tend to happen when folks aren't happy—the classic sort of midlife crisis, and you know the family issues, and and so on. So we're all pretty attuned at at being able to notice when someone's got a nice balanced life or when they don't. Yeah, that's why I kind of ask you that question. because one thing that I've I've
1: seen is a lot of times the either the titles of the position becomes a a crutch, a comfort zone, which people want to break out of and they want to do something different. But then you get scared of if I do this, what are the people going to think about me? What are the people going to say about me? Can I really step out of that? And I guess having you as an example to show that actually you can have a balance was quite good for them to, to see that actually it is possible. I mean, Kevin's doing it and he's, he's got a, a very multi-dimensional life and he's got his life and his work and he enjoys his own spare time yeah, I mean, as well. it,
0: it, A lot of it comes down to where do you get your self-worth? And I think you're right. The scoreboard is financial wealth or status or whatever and i think you know one of the benefits of having you know multiple passions multiple pursuits that are that are actually in tension with each other is it provides other ways to measure self-worth you know simple example like i you know rock climbing is something that i get an immense amount of of joy from and has absolutely nothing to do with money or title in fact none of that matters at all in fact one of my favorite things about having rock climbing as a as a passionate pursuit is that's where most of my friends come from and the honest truth is most of my close friends don't even know what i do for a living and frankly they don't care and nor should they they don't care how much money i make they don't care what my title is that means nothing to them in that community and so that you know provides a a completely different viewpoint on what it means to be happy what self-worth is and so on
1: When you're out there rock climbing, how do you feel?
0: Uh, Well, it's, you know, and everybody has the thing that they sort of connect with. Right. And I, I, I talk a lot about rock climbing because that is my thing, but it could be reading, writing, it could be drawing. You know, it's one of those things where the first time I ever tried rock climbing, which was over 20 years ago, it was an immediate, it clicked for me immediately. I think it combines a lot of things that I like. So, It's obviously physically challenging, you know. So it's demanding sport in terms of being strong and having good balance, being flexible and having good endurance, and so on. It's also mentally very challenging. When I'm rock climbing, the only thing I do where I'm not thinking about anything else, you know, my entire world is, you know, sort of a, a six foot circle of of rock around me. It tends to take you to amazing places. These off the beaten path places that it takes you are some of the most beautiful places in the world. The secret really, though, is the people, the community. It's a community of like-minded people who do have a little bit different view on life. And, you know, what it's really taught me in a really, this sounds a bit cliche, is that truly um, the best things in life are, are free. They cost nothing. You know, I talk a lot about how the only things that matter in life are relationships and experiences. And the best of both of those things cost nothing. So if your scoreboard is money or wealth what are you doing it for? Like, what is that getting you? What, do, what are you really after? You know, as, as, as you know, many have said, you know, you can't take it with you, right? The only things you carry through life are your memories. I must admit, uh, when I saw the
1: videos, I've seen some videos, i got some awesome videos on, on Twitter, when you were holding on to the, I was just like, I was in absolute awe. I'm, <laughs> I'm not lie. It looks absolutely amazing, but it looks just free free from any inhibitions it's completely focused just you just holding on concentrating and without a care in the world and i can see why you say that it's the best things left out for free because when you're in that zone yeah, it's a flow to state and
0: else. whatever you're pursuing mastery and i think that pursuit of mastery which of course is a goal you never achieve you never truly master things but also one of the things that climbing has taught me and this is directly applicable to life is climbing is mostly about failure when you're climbing something that's really hard, you fail over and over and over. In fact, you know, some of the climbs I'm working on right now, I've failed on it a dozen or 20 times. And then finally you achieve success, but but that success, that feeling of success is fleeting. So what it teaches you is really to embrace the process, you know, the journey. And again, that sounds kind of cliché, but, but you know, there's a, there's a saying from a, a famous climber, and he's actually the founder of the company Patagonia, Yvonne Chenard, who said, you know, the problem is, you know, when you get to the summit, there's nothing there. And that's truly true. Like you achieve these goals in life, whether it be in climbing or business or whatever, and you realize like, oh, this is all there is. And actually the reward was the struggle. The reward was the journey. We need struggle. And so it's really taught me, you know, that's, that's crossed over into my work is like to really relish. The process and the journey a lot of us who are wired to be achievers you know we're so heads down focused on taking the hill or or hitting the next milestone that we don't take the time to enjoy the you know the journey which is the real reward and taking the time to
1: reflect appreciate is so critical because it actually helps you to be able to then as you move forward make better informed decisions when you just completely execute and executes and you just don't slow down
0: time and age sort of forces us in a way to slow down and reflect i i'm I'm guilty of exactly what you just said, you know just charging forward, not taking the proper time to reflect and and really to learn but you know i I turned fifty recently, and I will say that you know when I turned forty, it was no big deal like i I used to say you know the forties are the new twenties and you know but 50 did hit me differently because, you know, I think 50 is the point, age 50 is the point at which your mortality becomes sort of real, tangible. It's within, you know, it's, the end is it's within sight. You're probably, you know, around halfway down with your life. It's caused me at least to, to reflect on a lot of things. And, you know, the good news is I'm mostly happy with what I see when I reflect on my life through, you know, luck and hard work and whatnot. But also, I see some wasted years and some wasted time. You know, I wish I would have had some of this wisdom earlier in life.
1: What, when you look back over here, what would, would have been the key lessons you look on back and told yourself?
0: Well, you know, and again, you know, some of these are things you hear all the time, but they're very hard to internalize. You know, one of which is it's okay to be yourself. You know, I came up in an older system in corporate America where. There was sort of a one size fits all plan, right, for for how how a career should look and and what work looks like. And I always felt like a you know square peg in a round hole. It's like I was just wired differently than a lot of my my peers and my my colleagues. And I used to beat myself up about that a lot. And then I realized, but but over time I realized, well, wait, I'm getting better results than these people, but I'm just doing things differently. I approach things differently now. You know, the notion of like personality typing, you know, the Enneagram and and Myers Briggs, and all these are more commonplace and, and it's, you know, it's kind of more known and accepted that, but, but I will say even today, like in corporate America, at least there's still sort of a one size fits all model. People who are creators don't fit. It's hard to fit into the corporate model. And so that's one is just like embrace who you are. And then, and then also like there's a great big world out there. And There are many ways to have, to build a career and to make money and to support yourself. And so it is like, I think following your passion is is a big thing is, you know, because work at the end of the day, work is a huge part of our life. It's something we need. We need that struggle. We need that challenge. So if you're going to spend tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of your life working, it may as well be something that you care about. And
1: it's also about being okay to just stumble in a sense and try different things out see what works what doesn't i mean you said at the start you went into a couple of different fields you're like yeah that's not for me consultancy no i don't want to do that Engineering, i don't want to do that so you were willing to try new things and experience it and make the decision to move and deviate to something else rather than sticking with it because you see that happen all the time where you start doing
0: something you don't really want to do but you feel stuck and you keep on walking that path for whatever reason yep I seem to see that a lot with attorneys or lawyers in particular is I think a lot of people from my generation went into law because it was always viewed as a very respected profession. You could make good money, but it turns out that there's a lot of lawyers out there that are miserable, that make good money. And it kind of, it does, as you said, it becomes a bit of a trap because, well, what else can I do that would, would make this money? and you mentioned the idea of being able to try different things. I'm actually working on a, on a, a written piece right now that I, I'm calling the 10-year plan. The luxury of being young, let's say, if you're in your 20s or 30s, honestly, even into your 40s, is you can think in a 10-year horizon. And there's almost nothing that can't be accomplished in 10 years, but you have to have a strategy. You have to be deliberate. And so, what I'm outlining in this piece is the various strategies that you can pursue. So, for example, if you're wired to be more of an entrepreneur, the beauty of a 10 year plan is I can try 20 different things. So, I call it having a lot of at bats to use a, a baseball analogy. I don't have to put all my eggs in the one basket. If, but, but what I do have to do is be deliberate about if something's not working to recognize that and move on. Or it, a different strategy for 10 years is uh, what I call the sure thing. A good example of that is real estate. So, if you are interested in in real estate and real estate investing, there's a formula that works for, and it works for everybody. And you know, there's a very high likelihood of success if you do the right things, you put the work in. And so that's another strategy that over a course of 10 years, you can build a ton of wealth in real estate by focusing on that one thing because it has a high likelihood of success. So there's different strategies but this idea that we can accomplish just about anything in, in 10 years. And frankly, you could, you can even apply if you're, even if you're 50, you can think about, okay, by the time I'm 60, here's where I'd like to be. And here's the strategy I'm going to choose to get there.
1: One of the things that goes in the back of that, as I listened to your talk was around, around failure and being okay with not being, um, with failure not seeing yourself as a failure, but being okay with failing at certain things. And with the different IPOs you've had and successes with um, acquisitions, you also talked about having some spectacular strikeouts, as you put it. And I was just curious to see what some of those those strikeouts were and what lessons you actually took from them. Because like I said, we learned so much in failure. So it was always quite good to hear from experienced people like yourself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think most people who have been successful have also had their share of failures along the way, and, and they would tell you that failure is where the real learnings occur. <laughs> when you're successful, there's many factors that go into it, including luck, and it's like it's hard to learn a whole lot. It strokes your ego, but when you fail, it's usually very you know the the reasons for failure are painfully clear often. And so, you know, I mentioned that I started my first company at 27. That was at the height of the original internet boom, and my business partner and I raised a bunch of money. We built a 100 person company had a ton of momentum. And then the, the bubble burst, if you remember in, it, around the turn of the millennium, the bubble burst, and it was not pretty for a lot of companies, including mine. Ultimately, um, my company went out of business and we lost millions of dollars in, in investment money, and, and lots of people lost their jobs out of that. And it was very, very difficult. But I think one of the learnings that comes from it is that a single failure is, does not define you. And I would say, you know, a couple of things. One is you get up and you try again and you you learn, you you, you identify the things that contributed to failure and hopefully you fix those. But also back to kind of bring this full circle to where we started, hugely valuable to be a multidimensional person when you have a major failure in your career, right? Because that's only if you're multidimensional, that's only part of your life. So, you know, to use my example, you know, if you wanted to allocate percentages, you know, probably less than at this point in my career, less than 30% of my self-worth comes from the work that I do. And 70% comes from other things that I do, whether it's climbing or family or some of my other passions that that I pursue. And so, but if, but if work is sort of 100% of what defines you, it can be devastating and hard to recover. So that it's a, it's a reason to think about being multidimensional and, and being balanced, but lots of, you know, practical and sort of philosophical learnings that come out of failures. And you have to also embrace, if you choose a path that involves taking risk, that's part and parcel of it. I mean, statistically, for example, in the startup world, I think over 80% of startups fail. To think that you're some exception to that and that everything you do is going to turn to gold, that you're, you know, Elon Musk, that's probably not realistic. And so I think you have to take that view. And again, back to this 10-year idea Take a portfolio approach. And clearly, you know, if you have repeated failures, maybe you need to ask yourself, maybe this strategy isn't for me. You know, you have a string of three failures. It's like, okay, you know, maybe I need to choose a different path. You know, if you keep at it and you learn from your mistakes, there's a good chance you'll find success.
1: Do you ever think to yourself, I'm going to stop doing what I do and I'm just going to, in a sense, retire? Because you've had a string of successes, you've had your failures, you've moved to a your place, you're doing what you love doing, you're 50 now, you're reflecting on life, and you seem to just, if you've got like a new lease of life, like you said, just launching something that's brand new to challenge and diversify that industry when it comes to banking. What keeps you going and keeps you like motivated?
0: You know, to me, retirement is a funny notion because like this idea that, you know, you work until you're 65 and doing something that you don't enjoy, you save up all this money and then you, you retire and do nothing is just strange to me because to to me, the way you should think about a career is in the early days of a career, you have to do things you don't want to do. You have to do, you know, some, some work just to pay the bills, but over time you should be deliberate about increasingly as you acquire skills uh, and expertise and relationships, that more and more of your work is things that you would do even if you weren't getting paid. And so that, so that by the time you're, let's say my age, 50 years old, that 80% of what you're doing is th- are things you would do anyway. So that's where I am today. So the retirement isn't even like a thing to me because in everybody's life, there's some percentage of your time that's just doing things that you don't enjoy. That's unavoidable. But I'd say, you know, 70 to 80% of what I do, I would do even if I wasn't paid because I, it's what I'm passionate about. And to me, that's, that's the goal. And, you know, I'll continue that forever, hopefully, you know, health, health allowing. Because here's an interesting, a funny story related to that is that this was a couple of months ago, I was lying in bed with my wife and she asked me a question. She said, Kevin, what would you do if we were worth this amount? God bless my wife. She doesn't, she's not really involved. I do all the finances in, in our household. We have kind of a division of, of labor. And what she didn't know is we are worth that amount. And so I didn't tell her that, but I, I said, I'd probably do exactly what I'm doing today. Uh, and that is, that is the answer. And so I tell my friends, and this is something for, for people to take to heart. I've walked away from more money than I've made. And that's hard. It's very hard to do. And people have said I'm crazy. But the reality is, if I went from where I am today to being a billionaire, it wouldn't change my life meaningfully in a positive way. In fact, there's probably some, some negatives that would come with it. I'm privileged. I'll just be the first to say I'm incredibly privileged to be able to say that. But but I think that even if you're you're not there yet, that mindset is something you can take to heart. Even if you're just getting started, this mindset that wait, The goal is not just like to have as much stuff and money as possible. The goal is to build a life where I've got enough to do the things that bring me joy, which don't cost that much money, and to be able to spend my time the way I choose. Would you say that would be your
1: definition of success?
0: Yeah. In a a nutshell, I think having control over your time and being able to pursue your passions. Yeah. And understanding that that doesn't mean if you're passionate about golf, that doesn't mean that you golf all day because I don't think that's a formula for for happiness, we need different types of challenge in our life and we need struggle. So some of that, you know, back to what I was saying earlier is like learning to embrace that struggle for what it is. Like I'm, I'm working on tough problems. I've got, you know, not all of my relationships are perfect, but that's part of, that's all part of the journey. It's almost a form of stoicism to allow those things to kind of, you know, be what they are and flow through you.
1: So I'm going to say we have this conversation time and time again about or oh, the quote that says money doesn't equal happiness. Well, so for some people, they'll say yes. Some people say no. The studies have proves that when you get to a particular point, it doesn't make a difference anymore, but you have to get there. But it's that last phrase of people want to get there. So what would you say to people who still have this notion as this dream of it has to be all about financial wealth? It's easy for you to say because you've been there, done that, you've experienced it.
0: Yeah, it's easy to say that money doesn't equal happiness when you have money. Uh, when you don't have it, it does mean everything because, you know, money is, it provides security, which is super important for our psyche and enables experiences. And so I'd say, you know, to people that one is listen to people like me and others who say, look, it's almost a liberating thought to think that, Hey, look, I'm going to set my life up so that I don't have to make $5 million to be happy. I'm going to embrace minimalism. And I thought that's something I encourage everybody to study because it's, it's not what most people think it is. It's really about understanding what brings you joy and, and making space for, for more of that. And then secondly, it's also like, it's comforting to have a plan. I talked about this 10 year plan. So let's say you're starting from zero, got nothing to lose, have a plan and make baby steps, you know, baby steps and compounding are everything. If you're on Twitter, business Twitter, you see this all the time everybody says this and it, because it's true is that it's amazing what you can accomplish over time, just taking one tiny step at a time. And the first step's always the hardest and it's developing that routine and that habit. And so I think if you're young, starting with nothing, listen, you know, Twitter's an amazing resource. You know, people share really hard-earned wisdom acquired over many years and at great cost and have a plan and just take baby steps and, you know, don't be afraid to, to course correct. One of my favorite quotes of all time is, I think it was Dwight Eisenhower said, the plan is nothing. Planning is everything. The process of planning is really the value. The plan that, you, that results is good for about 20 minutes and then it's outdated. But, but forcing yourself to think through these hard issues about like, what kind of life do I want to construct? And oh, by the way, if I go buy a car and take on a car payment, does that move me toward that goal or away from that goal? And so it's, it almost becomes like a, a filter or a litmus test for everything you do. One thing you mentioned in that was around
1: compounding. Like I want to like go in a bit deeper on compounding and I was explaining to people what compounding is, but really how that applies to life, because it's such a powerful way of people think about obviously generally with finances, but such a powerful way of approaching life where you can build in it daily, daily, daily. And it's not just now and it looks into that 10-year plan or you slowly build, but we really want to go deeper into that with you around what compounding can actually play out for someone like yourself and and how you've seen that in
0: your life as well. It's a subject I like to geek out on. So I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're interested (laughs) to talk about it. It, You know, I, I always say that, you know, compounding and baby steps kind of go hand in hand and I'll describe. So compounding comes from the world of finance and the basic phenomenon is that what what appear to be small gains on a daily basis over time, become they go exponential. They become extraordinarily. So, you know, for example, you you know, you invest a thousand dollars, and if you're earning, let's say, just five percent gain on that annually, in one year, it seems like oh, I just I only made you know uh, fifty bucks in interest on this thousand dollar investment. But the way the math works is a five percent annual gain over twenty years becomes an extraordinary return, uh, a multiplier. And so a lot of people, including myself, apply that concept to everything in life is, you know, making those small deposits, so to speak, in any, go- toward any goal. It doesn't feel like you're making a lot of progress on a daily basis, but over the course of months or years, you make extraordinary progress. And one simple application, like let's say you want to learn something, learn a language. Let's, let's say you spend 20 minutes a day. On that language, you know, after a week, you know, many people would, would say, "Gosh, you know, this seems overwhelming." I haven't, I don't, I can't speak Spanish very well yet, you know, and they give up. But if you stick with that twenty minutes a day for, let's say, five years, you're almost certain to be fluent in Spanish. Taking those baby steps, and it it's compounded. And the the point there is that that applies to just about everything in life is this idea of of compounding and we like to use, you know, all of us tend to, to, you know, we find excuses for not being able to make those deposits. But the reality is we all have the time to, to, to take baby steps toward whatever goal we want. So to simplify the message is spend the time, you know, back to this, you know, the plan is nothing, planning is uh, uh, everything. Spend the time deciding what your goal is and then be deliberate about it. Take, take those little baby steps and, you know, it takes a little bit of discipline, a little bit of work. Developing of habits, and you know, you can get there. You believe in the
1: or do you subscribe, I say, to the 10,000 hour rule.
0: You know, I think mastery is a fascinating subject. The notion is that Malcolm Gladwell, I forget which book it was, but he, he talks about the idea that it takes 10,000 hours to master something. And you know, obviously, that's, that's very much a rule of thumb and it probably varies. But yeah, I mean, that is that's the outcome of many years of baby steps and compounding is that you've achieved mastery in whatever it is that you're, you're pursuing. And of course, mass, true mastery is never achieved. I mean, Michael Jordan would probably say he was still improving on his game when he retired, right? Because that's, it's more of a mindset than it is a goal. But, but it, clearly you achieve a very high degree of competency. And I think like, you know, as an example, like back to this idea of being multidimensional, the reality is, especially earlier in my career, I didn't have a ton of time to spend rock climbing now I have more time and I live near the rocks. So I was doing, you know, a couple gym sessions a week, going on weekend trips to go outdoors and climb. And I stayed at it. I think there's maybe been over 20 plus years. There's maybe been twice where I've gone more than a week without climbing. It's it's kind of crazy actually, you know, it's a bit of an obsession, but you know, those deposits add up. And now it's very satisfying to be good at at that pursuit, and that wasn't even my sort of primary focus with my time. I mean, my career for a long time was my primary focus, but it's very satisfying to have made those deposits, and that's how you become multidimensional. You can't do it overnight. You've got to make those investments early and let the compounding take effect. One of the dimensions that you mentioned that's
1: very important to you is is family, and in that side of things, how have you balanced work and even the move? Because you mentioned. Obviously, you quit work and you move to to Boulder, which is a massive change <laughs> for the family. And as someone who's done that previously and had a conversation with a wife, like, right, I'm leaving that work, and I know that conversation is never easy. So, how has that been for you?
0: Uh, sometimes I, I'm a pretty, I'm kind of an optimist, so I am always afraid that I come across as you know, painting things overly rosy or like everything's perfect in my life. That's not the case at all. In fact, the move is a great example of something that was very difficult. I had to basically force the move. I, was, I reached a point in my life where. I was seeing a lot of conflict. I was out of town a lot to pursue rock climbing. I was, I had a a demanding job. There was a cost to that. And family was one of the things that was being sacrificed. One of the reasons I wanted to move wasn't purely selfish to serve my own, you know, desire to, to be near rocks. It was so that my, my passion for rock climbing didn't have to be in direct conflict with, with my passion for spending time with family. And so now, you know, fast forward you know, now I can go climbing in the morning and still be home for lunch and dinner. I'm I'm a big believer in intermingling things. And I know I I read a couple of your recent pieces on Medium about hybrid work and remote work. So I know this is something you think about, but I'm a huge proponent of, of remote work. One of the primary reasons is it allows you to intermingle all the things together. I might, you know, when we finish this podcast, I'll probably walk into the kitchen and have a quick interaction with one of my kids or my wife. I call those in-between moments. So it's five minutes here, 10 minutes there, but it adds, it's like compounding, right? It, it adds up over time. And so that's been completely life-changing for me. And I think you're hearing that story from, from many, many people who have now been able to have a taste of remote work. It's just from a family standpoint, it's just been life-changing. And of course, there's some negatives too. But I think on the whole, it's a huge net positive for families and just in terms of the number of interactions. And so for me, to to answer your question and kind of summarize very directly, the key has been like setting life up so that all these things can be intermingled, right? These seemingly conflicting things all now become sort of one intermingled thing and I'm flowing in and out of them throughout the day. It kind of all works.
1: the biggest areas of of conflict especially with those who are startups and founders is around that relationship with their partners the amount of time they spend in their business and keeping that flow and as someone who's been married for 20 plus years who has uh, two beautiful daughters what would your one piece of advice practical
0: advice be to someone who's who's dealing with that struggle if you're going to be a founder and especially if you're going to be a founder of like a venture backed company where you're trying, you're attempting a moonshot and you've got you know, lots of external investor dollars behind you and so on. There's no question that makes demands on your extraordinary demands on your life and there are sacrifices to be made. That being said, one of my observations, because I've, I've started multiple companies, I've done that many times and, and I've had success and failure is that there's a lot of false urgency out there. The reality is if you're building something great, whether that happens in six months or a year or two years, usually the outcome of these things, especially in like these tech startups is fairly binary, right? You're either wildly successful or it fails. That's kind of how, how the game is set up. And so what you want to do is in that case, focus on maximizing your chances for success and you can take your time. Like, I mean, obviously you, you, you want to move as quickly as you can, but time is is usually not the killer like right? usually companies don't die because some competitor did the same thing but did it faster i mean you, there are examples of that but that's not usually the case if you're attacking a large market you have a good idea and you're building something great then you know slow and steady is is fine so this idea that and there's always a lot of debate about this on twitter but this idea that you know you need to work 20 hours a day and sleep in your office and you know, I call bullshit on that to be honest, because honestly, I'm not even sure that's the most productive way to work. And then the other thing is there's a lot of discussion about like, well, you got you have to work hard to be successful. And of course, that's true, but what is work? is the question. like so if you're working on something you're passionate about, you're working hard, but it doesn't feel like work. I mean, I remember I'm thinking of one specific business I started where you know, every night I would um, come home from my day job and I would work on my startup from 6 p.m. to about 2 in the morning. And I did that every day, pretty much seven days a week. I didn't think of it in terms of like, I'm working 20 hours a day. I thought of it in terms of like, I'm, I get to do all this fun stuff in, the, in, the, in my off hours. This is I'm like, I'm learning. It's fun. I'm growing. And so that's the other thing is back to this idea of like finding something you're passionate about so that it doesn't feel so much like work.
1: That's a, that's a really great, example of what i was talking about so if you're working and let's say you got nine to five at the moment and then you come home and then you're trying to work on your your side project and your startup where in there is there any room for family and different things like that or is there a case if you do have to sacrifice that element of things for a period of time
0: great question and, and look these things are hard to balance let's just be honest. like i don't have all the answers here but i can give you a couple of things that have worked for me one is like having a little bit of structure So we've got a pretty traditional family dynamic in my household. And ever since my wife and I've been married, we've had dinner together pretty much every night. We still do a traditional, like we sit down at the dinner table to have dinner. That's like sort of a pre-planned time and you, you've got to eat anyway. So why not you know, just make it a family thing? The other thing that's really cool, this is an underrated parenting tip, is bring your kids into what you're doing. So uh, I have a great you know, real world example. The, the new product that I'm working on, we just received from our, our branding agency, some of the, the brand design work, the, the visual identity. And it's really cool looking. It's beautiful. My kids are some of the first people I bring in to show that work. And I, I get their feedback. We have a discussion about it. You know, again, back to this idea of working remotely. My kids hear me having conversations, business conversations. They'll ask me questions about it. I'll explain it to them. So, you know, let's say, you know, you're, it's, it's an evening and you've come home from work and you're working on your project five minutes here and there. Those, those can be incredibly meaningful interactions uh, versus like, and sometimes more meaningful than like some sort of scheduled, like, Hey, I'm going to take my daughter to the park or to a movie or something. It's sometimes more meaningful when it happens organically. And it's in the context of something that, that you're, you're both genuinely interested in. Those can be the most intimate moments.
1: Are your kids interested in going into, into your world of finance, banking, startups, or are they just in something
0: else? <laughs> uh, who knows? I mean, it's too early, but probably not. That's, you know, you get the kids you deserve, not the kids you want. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you know, I wish I had kids that were passionate rock climbing and also like finance nerds, but they're not, they have, they're both very different and have their own interests. It's probably a little bit early, but my older daughter, who's, you know, probably, this is probably more relevant for because she's 16 and we're starting to think about college. She's an artist and does this, these amazing mixed media art pieces so she's probably headed to a art or design school, which, frankly, you know that that would have been something that had I known that whole world existed, that I probably would have would have loved because I've always been you know sort of creatively driven and you know a big fan of art and design. And so, and my my younger one's probably a little bit more analytically wired. And so, who knows, right? Yeah, it's hard to predict.
1: It's interesting how when our kids are, are growing up and the way that we just seem. The world has opened up in so many different ways. I mean, like art and design twenty years ago, I'm like what are you doing, that's that's not that's not a career. But now it's it's massive. It's such a
0: massive space to dive into. I told my daughter, like, and it's becoming more important. Design is fundamental to everything. It's always been true, but now there, there's much more recognition of that, and so big companies are hiring lots and lots of designers where in the past that this wasn't even a, a job that existed in the corporate world. Makes you
1: think what else does the future hold? And especially in your world, I'm sure you see it a lot with the change that tech is driving such a rapid rate of things that is you never thought was possible. Now it's just becoming more and more possible.
0: That's another big kind of thing I always say is like we when we look backward at history It takes our breath away how fast things have changed. I mean, you know, when I graduated from college, the internet was in its infancy, just barely most people were not on the internet. But then strangely, when we look forward, we sort of assume things will be the same. And this, you know, ties into this whole remote work discussion too, is like the people who are like pro office, they assume that remote work is going to stay in its current state. Well, remote work during the pandemic was the worst it's ever going to be. The tools and technologies will evolve and and our culture will evolve. You can't predict the specifics of technology and the breakthroughs that'll happen, but you can see the trends. Like the trend is that probably remote work is going to be here to stay and it's going to become more and more prevalent. And, and COVID was an accelerant for that. And so that's that's something you can you can bet on. You can bet on, you know, trends like crypto and DeFi. Like, right? I don't know if Bitcoin's going to be the answer, but I do know that. Uh, decentralized finance and in cryptocurrency and blockchain are probably here to stay because there's too many smart minds working on it for, for it not to be for that not to be true. And so that's kind of how I like to think about things is bet on the macro trends. Don't try to predict the specifics, just bet on the macro trends.
1: I think about the trends is it scares the living daylights out of the traditional way of working. I mean, in your world, in the banking world, I mean... Was it what, four or five years ago when, when crypto really hit, people were like, oh, this is this is a far, this is gonna fade. Fast forward <laughs> last year, everyone was on it. And a lot of the bigger organizations, the golden Sachs of the world, were talking about it investing heavily in the same people who said this was ridiculous and this was rubbish.
0: Yeah, well, it's vested interests, right? So like banking in particular has had a protected oligopoly for decades, right? Because you can only be a bank if you have a charter that's granted by the federal government, which is pretty hard to get. And so banks have had a license to print money and they've always done business the same way. I always say that the way that your grandfather uh, banked is pretty much identical to the way you bank. You have an app in your pocket that you can use that's a little bit more convenient than going to a bank branch. But the way you, the products themselves are exactly the same. Now, finally, You've got fintech and neobanks and crypto and banks are being attacked from all angles. And I think we're at an inflection point where true change will occur. There's many in, instances of that where, as you said, you know, people like to put their head in the sand and sort of you know, deny that you know, these things are happening. For, the first stage is denial, right? And then you, know, you move on from there. Neil deGrasse Tyson has this uh, great quote where he says, you can deny the future, but that doesn't keep it from happening the future is happening right so you have two choices you can either deny it or fight it or you can just embrace it and, and kind of look at it as an opportunity and that's kind of what you know, I've spent the the past 7 years I guess I've been working inside of bigger companies trying to help them figure out how to how to move forward in the world and that's kind of what I do is within big companies they need a lot of help kind of understanding how to embrace the future and what what are the opportunities a lot of times you know, senior leaders at larger companies view all these changes as a threat. And I, I tend to, you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of an optimist at heart, but I, I see a lot of these changes and I look at it as massive opportunities. Because if a big company can get out of its own way, they have huge opportunities.
1: This is music to my ears. because that, that's, that's how I see things. It's disruption is not a bad thing. The iPhones that we all use and different chains with Netflix, that all came from disruption. And it's about having that, that growth mindset and looking at things with a different perspective. It says, okay, how can we embrace this? How can we utilize this rather than trying to fight the system and go back to the old way? So um, I'm so with you.
0: Yeah. And that. I was talking to a friend the other day, like you can, you can extrapolate this down to an individual level. So to me, the definition of being old has nothing to do with age. To me, you officially become old when you reach a point that you're no longer willing to learn or grow. And you can be 80 years old and still be growing and learning um, and you're not old. Or you can be, you know, 35 years old and resistant to change, fixed in your ways and you're old. It's that simple. And so at an individual level, that's something for us to be mindful of is like you just said, you see these changes and think about how do you learn and grow through it? How do you embrace the change? How does it, you know, what, what opportunities are there? How would you define leadership? Yeah, I think there's there's multiple ways to to define it. You know, I think a lot of people conflate management and leadership. You have a lot of people who are who are managers that get promoted and remain managers and never really develop strong leadership capabilities. We're all familiar with the micromanagers that we've all we've worked with throughout <laughs> our, throughout our careers. It's it's painful. I mean, to be honest, like leadership is mostly about having a vision, building a team who can help you execute that vision and getting out of the way. You're there to provide help. So the, the, the honest truth is I was always wired to be a better leader than manager. You know, I, I, I always, a uh, joke within my company that if I was put in charge of operations, we would be out of business in six months uh, because I'm just not wired that way. I'm not a, I'm not a, um, a details oriented manager. But I've always been pretty good at seeing opportunity, being able to to articulate that to teams and to identify talented people who can manage and execute and create great things. And then creating the culture to support having a clear vision, having a great team and providing an environment to do great work. That's it.
1: My last question will be around the other areas that you talk about a bit about a bit about faith and why is your your faith so important to you?
0: Yeah, that's something that people don't talk a lot about these days. But you know, we all have faith. It's just a matter of whether we recognize it or not. You have faith in something. We all have a religion. I'm a Christian, and you know, a lot of mine. And I've struggled with that over the years. And I think it's natural to wrestle with your faith. But for me, you know, I start off from almost a sort of existential place where, you know, the universe is a mysterious thing, right? The universe, I think there's like a million stars in our universe for every grain of sand there is on Earth, like just unfathomably big. And to think that humans are peak existence is to me super small minded, like that there's no greater power, whatever you may call that. And then the more you learn, you know, I'm the son of a physicist, so I, I've studied a bit of physics and in particular quantum physics, and you learn about the amount, of, the amount that we know about our universe is minuscule, right? The analogy I draw is, you know, if you're walking on a sidewalk and you see an ant meandering along on the sidewalk how much does that ant know about where it lives the planet the universe you know nothing we are no better bigger than on the universal scale we're no more intelligent or knowledgeable than that ant on the sidewalk that's how you know little we know and so it seems incredibly arrogant and very quite human to think that we can definitively say there's no greater power out there so I start from there, which actually has not a whole lot to do with, with Christianity itself, but it's a good basis to at least be humble enough to say, you know, there's something out there. And then I, I only encourage everybody to search, search for the truth and as a way of revealing itself, if you do the work. And for me, you know, I think the story in the Bible is the, the greatest story ever told in my own search for truth. You know, I, I became a believer basically, and it's a big part of, of my life. But again, I, I, My only encouragement to people is to, you know, take that view that like, hey, look, there's a lot more out there that I don't understand, that none of us understand, and search for truth.
1: Yeah, that curiosity is is key. I'm I'm also a believer. My faith has been fundamental to help me to take what I call faith leaps and keep on pushing forward because it's that actually I don't know everything, I don't see everything, and be curious and to search for yourself what works for you and what drives you forward because like you said we all we'll believe in something whether we want to admit it or not, we all believe in something this so is whether that something is for you And also just like there.
0: from a practical or pragmatic standpoint isn't it a lot more fun to to think that there's more to life than just living and dying you know and, and if we're wrong we're wrong <laughs> but but it sure is a lot more fun to live with hope i think so <laughs> <laughs> Again, like, I just turned 50. Kind of depressing to think that, like, I'm on the backside of life and that's all there is. I like to believe there's more. Kevin,
1: Wick is, Wick is talking oh, so
0: many different topics, but, <laughs> but
1: really, really appreciate you just sharing your, your experience, your, your wisdom, and where's the best place people can get hold of you?
0: Twitter, man. I'm sure that's what everybody says these days. You know, so my handle on Twitter is Camp4, at Camp4, and just so everybody knows, I get asked all the time, like, why is your handle Camp4? And, you know, it's a climbing reference, as you might have guessed. And Camp 4 is the historic climber's campground in Yosemite National Park, which is kind of, you know, the mecca, the worldwide mecca for rock climbing. And so I joined Twitter, I think, you know, 15 years ago. That was my handle, and I've stuck stuck with it. So it's Camp 4 on Twitter. And he really has some
1: great like, tweets and great conversations on Twitter, actually. That's that's how I came across
2: Kevin. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find out more about the show and the guest, as well as listen to other episodes at www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Please do follow or subscribe via your favorite app and share the episode with anyone you feel might find the wisdom and insight very valuable. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Everyday Leadership.